a radio host was researching the Gettysburg Address. I hope I don't have to tell you what that is about, the Gettysburg Address. Um, they discovered, he discovered, that the last part of the speech was commonly read in a familiar way like this, that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people should not perish on the earth. This radio host said that he discovered in his research that Lincoln's emphasis when he gave the speech was actually the government of the people, by the people, for the people should not perish from the earth. Lincoln emphasized not a preposition, but the people. He was moved by the people. It's interesting that the main speech of that day, on that day, the dedication of that cemetery, was Edward Everett, a senator, a great orator. His speech lasted over two hours. Lincoln's speech lasted just over a couple minutes. Lincoln's dedication remarks, although were short, although may not have had great volume, although may not have been long, they were still considered one of the greatest speeches ever made. The character of Lincoln certainly reinforced every word. The emphasis of the speech was provided by Lincoln's sincerity and his solemn attitude towards that moment. But the emphasis was the people, the people. I think there's a good reminder there for the church because it's about what? The people. It might just be a a slight way that you go about it, but what's the emphasis? The people. One can hardly overemphasize the significance of lay leaders, congregational involvement, minister teams throughout Acts. It's all about what? People being involved in the mission. You read through the book of Acts, I challenge you to find a record of great building programs in the book of Acts. I challenge you to find the property acquisitions that are found in the book of Acts. There are none. Acts is a running narrative of how God used people to spread the gospel, to expand his kingdom. And by the way, that running narrative is messy, right? There was infighting. There was opposition. There was conflict. There was personal failure. That was a part of the narrative. And yet, despite all that, God's church progressed through the training, through the efforts of who? People. The healthiest churches understand this principle. And the healthiest churches operate with integrity in this. And what I mean by that, it's easy to sit up on this stage and talk about people. Number one, we want people. You know, we love people. We respect people. And then behind the scenes, you know, 
you treat people with disrespect. Or, you know, the leadership or the pastor um, is a tyrant. So when I say with integrity, that means behind the scenes, there's, there's a respect for people as well. God's church progresses despite all these negative things that go on. That was the kind of church we see in Acts 13. It was a sending church. It progressed. Whether a church is sending out missionaries or, or reaching a community or reproducing small groups or just multiplying individual disciples, what we see in Acts 13 verses 1 through 5 is this. It's a church that is proactive in ministry. And by proactive, I mean doing all those things I just mentioned. Really, nothing is sadder than a church that's been given a a God-ordained mission. And they make no progress. They are dead in their tracks. And by the way, you could be a large church, you could be a small church. This has nothing to do with buildings or the amount of people you warehouse in the building because they're not sending people. They're not reaching. They're not reproducing. That's what's sad. The church is more like a museum. Let's just give honor to all the things that God has done in the past. Let's look at our beautiful things inside the church and the beautiful people inside. Now, there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, while the background of these people is mentioned by Luke, and I'll address that here in a second, it seems that the preeminent thing he's accentuating here is the fact that these were teachers and prophets, Teachers and prophets. That deals with the word of God, right? We can say it this way. There is no real unity. There is no sustainable mission without the consistent instruction of the word of God. As members of the body of Christ, men and women are gifted to help others grow in the church. They are built up through the word of God, they learn how to use their gifts with the instruction of the word of God, and the kingdom of God is expanded. Now, there are a variety of gifts, right? You might be surprised to know, though, that the scripture seems to elevate certain gifts above others. You heard it right. Hebrews. 11.6, let me explain this. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please God. Romans 10.17 says, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing through what? The word of Christ, or the word of God. We can say it this way, you can't please God without faith, and you can't have faith without the word of God, right? So if we get the revelation of God wrong, the foundation is faulty. Prophecy is inspired speech that is the result of divine revelation. Teaching is speech that explains and applies 
what God has revealed. Without being able to appreciate, understand, and apply the word of God, then I ask you, what good are the other gifts? 1 Corinthians, here's the passage that kind of elevates it. Chapter 12, verses 27 and 28 says this, Now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church, check this out, first, apostles. Now, these were the 12 that were disseminating the word of God or the New Testament. And if you want to extrapolate from this, you might even be able to call them church planners who started the church, would get the foundation of the church going, okay? Apostles. Second, what? Prophets. Prophets in the aspired speech as a result of divine revelation. And then who else? Third, teachers explaining, applying what God has revealed. So our first principle is this. The church becomes proactive by training people in the word of God. By training people in the word of God. The word of God is central. It's the job of the word to build people up. Okay? Now, Luke sets the scene by listing the church leaders in Antioch. And we'll notice that they were spiritually gifted. We've already talked about that. And they were diverse. There's Barnabas, who was a Jew from Cyprus. There's Simeon, who also has the name of Niger, meaning he was a black man. Then there's Lucius, who we assume is a Roman from Cyrene in northern Africa. And then we have Menaean, who is a lifelong friend of Herod, apparently grew up with Herod. This is Herod Antipas, a lifelong friend of the man who had John the Baptist's head put on a platter, a lifelong friend of the man who gave Jesus a hard time at his trial. And this guy comes to Christ. Pretty cool. He's a devoted follower of Christ. Then there's Saul, a Pharisee from Cilicia. He once was a committed Jew, trained in rabbinical schools, was a persecutor of Christians, converts to Christ, and now he's going to basically lead the church in the second half of Acts. He's a proclaimer of the gospel. So you have a diverse group of leaders mentioned in this church We can only assume they are representative of a diverse church, right? We could say this. When the church exhibits a functional unity with diversity, unity with diversity, then those people that are sent out are better prepared to minister in cultures that are religiously, ethnically, economically, and politically diverse. Right? Because I've grown up there. Because I've been trained in that culture. It's important. The diversity of the leaders of the church showed a broad-based nature of the church. Luke is not denying the heritage, hiding it under. He's highlighting the heritage. He marks as one of the greatest features of the body of Christ. Why? Because our unity is not around the culture that we come from. 
Our unity is around the gospel. Not denying the culture. Not hiding it. In fact, celebrating it. And then the unity that we can enjoy around the gospel. That's why we read in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Let me ask you this. Is there a dividing wall of hostility in our country with race, with politics, and a host of other ways that our country is divided? What's the way that we can come together? I'll tell you what. It, to me, it's only a spiritual movement within the heart of people through the gospel if you truly want unity. That's why the best thing we can pray for is that God would would bring a revival, that the people would become spiritually alive in Christ. A church that is proactive learns to appreciate diversity as an advantage. It's an advantage in how we minister. It's an advantage to the people that we send out, and we send people out. I'm glad to say the majority of the people that we send out in our church are from our church, who they go to foreign fields. The greater the diversity, the better prepared they are. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, that after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I want to at least state the obvious here. There's nothing in here about the size of the church. There's nothing in here about the budget, how much money the church had. They were still accomplishing the mission that God had for them, regardless of those things. It's not uncommon for folks to think, man, we just can't go on because we don't have the money. We just can't do it because we don't have a building. Money and size of congregation, listen, they are not the markers to determine the effectiveness or readiness of the church to send out missionaries or multiply. Because I guarantee you, there were people sacrificing to make it happen, right? It's not like they had these great coffers, you know, all this money. And they just had people say, hey, we got to get this done. We just got to find a way to do it. Now, granted, I'll be the first one to admit, things are a lot easier when you got a potload of resources, right? Right? But limited resources, you know what that does? That drives innovation. We learn how to depend upon God and think creatively out of the necessity that comes through limited resources. Right? Next, a church is proactive. That is proactive. Develops an environment where spiritual disciplines are a part of the culture. This is so obvious. The Antioch church was worshiping and fasting. The best decisions we make are, come when there is prolonged prayer, consecrated thinking. Right? And by the way, the worst decisions we make are those that are impetuous, right? One of the things they did is they fasted. That's the practice of 
of uh, setting food aside for a while to concentrate on seeking God's direction and his presence. Now, food's not the only thing you can fast from. You can fast from social media. You can fast from uh, TV. I was sharing the story of a, a mission leader who sends people out in the, uh, uh, I think I've shared this with you before, uh, runs a summer missionary program deal, and they didn't allow their uh, short-term mission people to take their phones with them when they went to the foreign lands. One gentleman, I'm not making this up, one gentleman had to be hospitalized because he was so traumatized that he did not have his phone. <laughs> really? I mean, was that, was that physically attached to his body? I mean, what? That's because it becomes like a, like, like a drug of some kind. That's when you need to learn how to fast. You know what? You can make it without being on Facebook. Try it without being on Instagram. It's good to take a break from these things for a while, right? Just don't ask me to fast from the Broncos then it's, or the Cardinals. Then you might have, no. You can fast from anything, particularly if it becomes an idol, right? It's a good way to learn. You don't want anything to get in the way of hearing God's voice. We put ourselves in this position of expectancy and openness to the Lord's leading. Now, it also says that they were worshiping. It doesn't tell us how they worshiped. We can assume that this included corporate worship and individual worship. So it was, it was an atmosphere where people were worshiping. That was welcome. That was accepted. It was not the kind of church, and you, know, you see this sometimes, where they put a kibosh on worshiping it. You, know, you guys are just getting a little bit too excited. You ever grow up in a culture like that, in a church like that? You know? They want anything vibrant. Want to control it, right? But listen, when you, when you try to put the kibosh on vibrant, Christ-centered, true-centered worship, the church becomes tone-deaf to the Spirit. Notice the next statement in our text. The Holy Spirit said... In other words, in this context, we're listening to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit communicated that there was a calling upon Barnabas and Saul. So a church that is proactive understands the responsibility for, before God. He calls, he places, he equips us in ministry. The decision for Paul and Barnabas ultimately was not before the church, although that did play a part. But they realized that it was a responsibility before God. He was the one that did the calling. Now, Paul and Barnabas still worked in the church and under the church, under the authority of the church. And we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit spoke. I take it to mean it might have been supernatural, verbal communication. Okay, But the Holy Spirit can speak in a variety of ways. I certainly am not going to say... He can't do that today. He certainly can. But he can also speak maybe through other people. Uh, can also speak through that still small voice, speak through prayer. The point is, these leaders were not just doing something on a whim, not just trying to satisfy some personal fancy. 
They went because they understood that God had called them. Clearly, it was something that God wanted them to do. The mission was inaugurated by God, communicated by God. And these leaders in the church had their ears on the track, listening to God, fasting, praying, worshiping. It's a good reminder to all of our ministry leaders, staff, elders, small group leaders, teachers, do you realize that you have a holy calling before an almighty God? That he has called you to use your gifts in a capacity to edify the church. And ultimately, he is the one that we're serving. But we also work in conjunction with the leadership of the local church. Next, a church that is proactive is deliberate in training, affirming, and releasing others toward ministry. So the Spirit of God, I want you to notice, was speaking to the whole church. Because while they were prophesying the Lord, uh, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called. Speaking to the church. But obviously it's spoken to Barnabas and Saul as well. They were recognized that God had set them apart. That means at the least what the church was doing was recognizing and affirming that call. That perhaps is a little more important than what we give it, the importance of that, right? Of of just kind of commissioning somebody, laying hands upon them, saying, you have our support, right? There's something powerful about that. One of the things that we do in our Nehemiah's men's ministry is we have men go through a, um, studies on what it means to be a man, a, a man from a, from a biblical sense. And we have other men from the congregation lay hands on that individual. He recites some scripture and a thing about what it means to be a boy and then moving to, a, to be a man. There's even a sword involved. Um, I've been involved in one where they had to jump over a fire. A lot of different ways that you can do kind of the ceremony. But all this was involved. And the reason is is you're trying to create a ceremony that other cultures do to transfer from boyhood to manhood, right? But my point is, in doing that, the impact that it has upon a man. I've seen seen 60-year-old men weep because they've never had the affirmation of other men in their life. Football players, 300 pounds, weep like a baby because they have the affirmation now that you're no longer a boy. You are a man, stand up and act like a man. You are, you are free to do that, accept these responsibilities. There's something powerful in that affirmation. This church recognized that 
Paul and Barnabas were set apart. It's not the first time Paul recognized his being set apart. He tells us in Galatians 1.5 that he was set apart at birth, separated to God, set apart. In Romans 1.1, he said he was set apart in his conversion for the gospel. And here in Acts 13, he's set apart for a specific mission. Our passage talks about the work to which I have called them. It's in what we call the Greek perfect tense. It means an action in the past that has present results. Uh, This shows that the Holy Spirit had already dealt with Barnabas and Saul personally. However, because now they're serving in the church, the church would play a part in commissioning and sending them, blessing them. They had responsibilities in the ministry of the church at Antioch, and the church had responsibilities to Barnabas and Saul in releasing and sending them. In other words, the Spirit's message was not in a vacuum, you know, just some personal message to Paul and Barnabas, but it was communal. It was a shared message confirmed by the church and by the testimony of Paul and Barnabas. I like this releasing that takes place in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The laying on of hands identified the church with their ministry, acknowledged God's direction for them. It was a commendation, a blessing, an affirming from the whole body, and now you're being sent out. It demonstrates that they have the backing, the support, the prayers of the local church. We, we would call it a commissioning service today, right? I mean, all of this, you know what it does? It implies that we've witnessed something in these people's lives. It implies even a, perhaps even a, a procedure to get them to this point, to prepare them, to recognize their giftedness. That, that we, we have a confidence in their character. We have a confidence in their preparedness. And they send them out. Again, I think there's instruction for us here as a church. Are our people being trained to be sent out? Why else do we, every time a person comes to Christ, we have specific training available for them. Why else do I take eight to 10 men every year and spend a year with them to train them for leadership? Why else do we have a membership class going on right now to train people on what it means to be a part of the body of Christ? All of these are ways in which we take very seriously this idea of, of equipping and training. But we'd have to ask, can we do a better job as a church? I'd say yes, we definitely can. Particularly in this idea of releasing people and and commissioning them. And then I'd have to ask the leaders, are you hearing the call of God? Are you hearing the Holy Spirit's voice? And are you considering that a holy calling to ministry? I'm not talking about vocational ministry, you know, because this is my full-time gig. I'm talking about using your gifts in the body of Christ. Every one of you have been given a gift. 
And every one of us has a holy calling to serve God to expand the kingdom. One of the best ways you can find that out is get on the treadmill and start serving. Do something. Start seeing what it is you like and don't like. Where does God energize you? Verse 4 says, So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Again, Paul and Barnabas, directed by the Holy Spirit. Is this something unique to the first century church? I hope not. Can the Holy Spirit not speak to us today? Absolutely he can. I'm not going to put God in some kind of a box and say he did that then, he can't do that now. Absolutely not. God can choose to confirm his direction any way he wants. But I don't think that God is, is less willing to speak to us now than what he was then. From Antioch, Paul and Barnabas would travel 16 miles to the coast. From there, they, sell, they sailed 60 miles to Cyprus. Cyprus is a, an island about a 140 miles long and about 60 miles wide. It was the home of Barnabas. It was known for its, its copper mines. It was annexed into the Roman Empire in 57 AD, or BC, excuse me. And then Salamis was the largest city in the eastern half of Cyprus. So it made sense for Paul and Barnabas to go and start with a familiar territory. Our last principle is this. Proactive leaders will exhibit a strategy that prioritizes the teaching and preaching of the word of God. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. They began their work in preaching to the synagogues. This was a pattern. We see this often with Paul as he would go to different cities. It suggests a strategy of ministering to the Jew first. It made practical sense to have some kind of contact point for the gospel. We read in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You say, well, what does that mean that other people are shut out? No. just means he starts with the Jews. Why? Because the Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Because the Jews ushered in the Messiah. Did God give them special privileges? Yes. He went to them first. But that doesn't mean that others were shut out. The gospel's for everyone. That's what it says in Romans 1.16. Salvation to everyone who believes. So just because strategically Paul went to the Jews first, it doesn't cut others out. The point is, there was a strategy, and he followed it. Every ministry has to have a plan or a strategy. Paul and Barnabas went to the larger cities, and they went to the synagogues. And notice, they also had a team, Barnabas, and they had John. John was an assistant. John wasn't mentioned as one of the teachers or the prophets, but he was an assistant. What he did, we don't know. But we do know this, we're going to talk about him later because he was a source of consternation to Paul. The point is, it was a strategy. 
And part of that strategy is to take into account your audience, the culture, ministering to the needs, having the, uh, the right people on your team with the right gifts. All that's part of the strategy. Now let's talk about what this might mean for us as a church, Christ Community Church. How, how do you distill all this and apply this to us? Well, I'm not going to claim that this is exhaustive, how the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Okay, you, you go with that. But in his book, Hero Maker, by David Ferguson, he says this. I really like this. This really resonated with me. The one thing every hero maker possesses that everyone around him or her needs is permission, which needs to come in the form of a yes. If you want to multiply leaders who in turn multiply leaders, you must lead with a yes. If the person around you cannot get a yes, they will never discover the dream God has for their life or reach their redemptive potential. If your followers can't get permission from you with a yes, they will never be engaged in the mission, end quote. How many times has it happened? Somebody wants to come and serve and say, well, you know, have you gone through this class? Have you done this? Have you signed this? Have you done, you know, there's a hundred different things and hoops that they have to jump through, right? That's not to say you don't have standards, but what you have to do then is you equip people to serve, right? We have to create a yes culture at Christ Community Church. It's the first thing that's out of our mouth, and we make the path easy to serve. Let us not complicate the process, and let us welcome people from all walks of life to participate and function in the God-given mission. It's really you're talking about a culture, a yes-saying culture. Secondly, I believe we have to change the way we measure. Change the way we measure. I mean, what, what has it typically been? Bodies, bucks, and buildings, right? Now, I realize the necessity of some of these things in our culture, and I'm not saying you don't count them. I'm just not saying they're not the most important number to consider when it comes to kingdom building. The practice of kingdom building is a shift from counting the number of people who show up and you warehouse in a facility to instead counting the leaders who go out and they do the kingdom building. We could say it this way. Our best fruit is counted on the tree of others. How about instead of tracking success by counting noses, we count the number of apprentices or mentors that we have going out developing other people. How about that? Our only motive would be that we're expanding the kingdom of God, not our own little kingdom. So instead of just counting how many people show up on a Sunday morning, we count how many people are being sent out to serve elsewhere. Or how many churches are being planted Instead of just counting how many small groups do we have, how about counting how many apprentices are being trained and how many new groups are we reproducing? How about instead of just counting how many decisions for Christ there are, as important as those are, but counting how many disciples are being made? 
and how many are being trained to multiply. You see, let's say that we're a shoe factory. We could be a shoe factory producing all these shoes, but what if they're crappy shoes? <laughs> right? What if they don't last? If, if you put it in that, in that way, our job is to produce disciples, quality disciples who are reproducing, right? It's the difference between kingdom building and building our own work. May God give us eyes to see. May God give us the will to seek to equip and empower people in their God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray.